Thank you. Well, I want to encourage you to turn to chapter 8 of the book of Acts. That's where we're going to be today. We arrive here where we get the chance to compare and contrast two different responses to the Christian message, one being the response of a Samaritan sorcerer, and the other the response of an Ethiopian eunuch. So turn with me to Acts 8. Stand, if you will. We're going to read the first 25 verses of the chapter. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men off and women off and committing them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely reliable, that it is the word of truth, the word of life. Pray that you would help us and in at least the, the multitude of these words to not get lost in the details of the story, but to understand what you would communicate to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, these first verses of, of chapter 8 describe a time of unusual blessing upon the church despite violent persecution by men like Saul. And even though Stephen is martyred and men and women are being dragged off to prison, yet people are being faithful. And you should note, based upon verse 4, that God sometimes uses persecution to spread out his people, right? So that they won't become too comfortable in isolating themselves in one place away from the world. Another thing to note from this narrative in Acts is a sudden change in direction, or at least of location. We're now in Samaria. And the first chapters all took place in Jerusalem and Judea, but you'll remember from our earlier looks at the first chapters that the primary theme of Acts is to describe the establishment of God's kingdom throughout Jerusalem, and then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so chapters 1 through 7 are describing the growth of the church in Jerusalem and Judea, and now the gospel begins to spread out into that next concentric circle. It takes a big step outward to Samaria, and God sends Philip to that place. And this is not Philip, the apostle, but Philip, one of the seven men who, along with Stephen, in Acts 6, were appointed to serve the Hellenistic widows. You may remember, again, from earlier looks at Acts, that these Jewish women, called Hellenistic, were part of the Greek-speaking world and culture that was outside of Israel, particularly to the West. The Hellenistic Jews were not fully welcome in Jerusalem, and of course, Christian converts weren't welcome at all, and so it's perhaps natural that Philip, who had the wisdom and the maturity to deal with discrimination within the Jerusalem church against the Hellenists, would be one of the logical men to scatter out to Samaria. And so he ends up here. And verse 6 tells us that he worked signs and miracles there. Many people listened to what he taught. And there was a great joy that, that took place in the city. Why? But why is this such a momentous event? Why is this so significant to us as we leave chapter 7 in Jerusalem, Judea, and we step into Samaria? It's significant because there had been such a great animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. In 721 BC, the Assyrians had conquered the northern ten tribes and took many of the Israelites with them to Assyria, and in their place, the Assyrians settled many of their own people into that territory. And because the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria, the city's population ended up with a high concentration of Assyrian immigrants. And over time, these Assyrians intermarried with native-born Israelites, and it led those in the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah, to call them half-breeds. The rabbi said of the Samaritans, let no man eat bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats the flesh of a pig. A popular prayer in those days said, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. So you can be sure the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ten of the twelve tribes had revolted and left to form this northern kingdom that is called Israel in the Old Testament. And so why was Philip's preaching so successful 
in Samaria, in this place? Why did they listen to someone from the south? If we assume that Philip's message was similar to Stephen's that we read in chapter 7, then the message was about Christ. And remember that many Samaritans had met Christ. They had believed in him as Messiah years before when Jesus had spoken to the woman at the well. It's what's recorded in John chapter 4. Perhaps ever since that day when Jesus had met the Samaritan woman there and the people had had talked with him and the disciples at the time, perhaps they had been anticipating someone like Philip to arrive. And the bottom line, of course, is that the Holy Spirit used Philip to draw hundreds, perhaps thousands, to Christ. And among these Samaritans was a man named Simon. He was a known expert in the occult. Verse 9 says he practiced magic or sorcery. And the word in Greek for sorcery is maguan, which we get the word magic from. You need to understand that a first century magician was a man or woman who combined several different pagan traditions from Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, Persia, and even Israel. From Assyria and Babylon came an interest in astrology, which was the practice of reading the constellations and stars to be able to predict the future. From Egypt came an emphasis on the power of words, spoken or written, especially the secret names of things. According to Egyptian magic, if you could find out the true name of some object, you were said to be able to control it. From Persia came an emphasis on demons, which were believed to cause illnesses and other human problems, but were also spiritual beings that a magician could supposedly control. And finally, from Jewish mysticism, Kabbalism, came the knowledge of certain angels' names that were considered particularly effective in magical incantations. And all of this is to say that Simon was likely a person who claimed to tell the future by reading the stars to the, the names of angels and demons that he could control to do his bidding. And verse 10 says he had convinced the Samaritans that he was the great power of God. Whatever he had done with his magic, he had impressed these Samaritans for a long time. And so when Philip came into Samaria, Simon naturally would have wanted to know, who is this new competition? And what he saw, he could not believe. He had spent years scheming and using the occult to win the adoration of these Samaritans, but here is true power. That's what he recognized. Here is true power. And fascinated by these miracles that Philip is performing, Simon publicly professes his faith in Christianity and is baptized. But upon what was his faith founded? It's a good question. What did he believe? I want you to, to think about that question for a moment. I want to turn your attention to the next account in chapter 8, which I believe that Luke intends to to lay side by side with the account of Simon because he wants to give us a, a contrast between these two stories. So verse 26 begins, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, 
a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? So stop there for a second and realize, in this secondary account, an angel has instructed Philip to go south to a road that connected Jerusalem to Gaza. That road was many miles from Samaria. It's actually over 100 miles away. Sometimes when we read the story, we think that Philip was working miracles in one part of Samaria and that just a mile or so outside of town was the Ethiopian eunuch. And so we think this is, this is right next door. But this is the road that connects, it says, Jerusalem to Gaza, which is way down in the valley. And here Philip comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch. God had this providential appointment that he sends him so far away to attend. And realize Ethiopia, the country today, very small today, but in Philip's time it included the Sudan, much of Central Africa. This is the era from which the Queen of Sheba, or the area I should say where the Queen of Sheba had come from in the days of King Solomon. So there was already established a link between Ethiopia and Israel. The Queen of Sheba had been very impressed by King Solomon. Solomon likely shared with her the Hebrew scriptures, perhaps sent some with him, her, I should say, and who is to say what may have happened? All we know is that centuries later, we have an Ethiopian, an important one at that, who has possession of the Old Testament, desiring to come all the way north to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. We also know that travel was expensive. It was difficult. It was often dangerous. And so this is not just a mere whim. It's not, it's not a day's journey. This is a pilgrimage. And undoubtedly, this Ethiopian had heard the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses. Perhaps he had heard about I'm sure, of King David, and probably smiled at the story of the Queen of Sheba. But then he arrives at these prophetic words from Isaiah, and he's caught up short because he's, he's reading about something he has not a single clue what it refers to. Like a sheep, he's led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. What a confusing passage. What was it about? Of whom was Isaiah speaking? natural questions that he would have had. And he's on his way back, right? And just as he is wondering about the meaning of this passage, reading even the passage out loud, Philip comes, overhears him reading. And we remember there are no accidents in life. There are only providential appointments. And Philip comes 
at precisely the right moment, the moment when the Ethiopian needs his help. And so Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And it's a great question. It's inoffensive. Yet it's a subtle and gracious offer to provide an answer and an explanation. Let's read the next verses. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's who this is about, Isaiah 53. And preached Jesus to him. And I want you to consider the fact that Philip would have preached the same message to Simon and the Samaritans. He would have demonstrated from the Old Testament that Jesus took our sin and carried our sorrows, just like Stephen had done in chapter 7, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He would have shown how we are all like sheep that are led astray. But I want you to notice the difference in response between Simon and the Ethiopian. Verse 13 stresses that Simon was amazed by Philip's miracles. We see more into Simon's heart heart in verse 18 when it says that he offered the apostles money if they would give him this power of the Holy Spirit. And notice that he did not say that he longed for the Holy Spirit or that he believed even in Jesus, but rather that he desired the power of God. For Simon, the gospel was ultimately a means to an end, something that would help him to get what he really wanted, which was influence and reputation and power. How did the Ethiopian respond to the gospel? Verse 36 says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? It's an excellent question. Simon had been baptized too. He had publicly professed faith. Again, what's the difference? Well, unlike Simon, who saw the gospel as a means to the end, the Ethiopian was amazed by Christ and wanted the gospel as its own end. Simon wanted the gospel to submit to him. The Ethiopian wanted to submit to the gospel. And that may seem like a simple difference, but it's a crucial one. Our society and In fact, a large percentage of people who attend this country's thousands of churches every Sunday want the benefits of Christianity. They want a useful, pragmatic, consumer-pleasing Jesus. Imagine a first-century pagan hearing the typical testimony of our modern churches. The first-century pagan is one who knows that Christian converts are typically rejected by family and employers are in prison for believing that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and King. He knows that he too could be fed to the lions or burned at the stake. And this this pagan listens to a well-meaning Christian saying something like, well, I accepted Jesus and it has been nothing but one blessing after another. It fixed my marriage. It made me feel good about myself for the first time in my life. What do you have to lose? Try Jesus. Give him a chance. Right? We see all the bumper stickers. It's like, got milk? Got Jesus? 
How would a first century pagan react to that kind of a modern pragmatism? Well, we don't find a single instance in the New Testament where the emphasis is placed on the usefulness of Christianity versus other religions or a tri-God, got-Jesus mentality. Instead, the issue is simple truth. Either Jesus did or did not rise from the dead. Either he is the son of God or he is a tool of Satan. The Old Testament describes the depravity of sin and looks forward to a savior. That is Jesus, and you must believe that with all your heart, that he is the son of God who rose from the dead to atone for your sins. There are many things in this life that seem to work. Cults and non-Christian religions work for millions, friends. In fact, the lure of many of the cults is that they work for families or they work for culture. False religion may work for many people in this life, but the end of it is death. And Scripture says in Ephesians 4, 22, that our old self which is our fleshly nature, is corrupt through deceitful desires. And those desires are entirely self-exalting, self-centered. And when Peter addressed Simon's request for power from the Holy Spirit, Peter addressed those fleshly desires directly. He told Simon in verse 20, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That may seem harsh, like a harsh statement by Peter, but it gets to the heart of things. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You thought you could buy power. You thought you could buy favor with God. But you have neither part nor lawn in this matter. He says your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see, do you see what Peter says? That you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity or sin. Peter knew something that we must remember. While there are many benefits to following Jesus, these benefits must not be confused with the gospel. The gospel is not about helping people like Simon tap into new power. It is about rebellion against a holy God who will ultimately condemn us to hell, absent repentance, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we are charged, we are commanded to proclaim that gospel message to the Simons of this world. The Bible says that sinners are at war with God. He's at war with them. And we need to communicate just how bad the situation is. Paul says in Titus 3.5 that Jesus Christ, through grace alone and not because of any person's value and worth, became a man, died on the cross, taking his people's sins upon himself, satisfying the wrath of God. He was resurrected from the dead in order that men like Simon and the Ethiopian could be saved from their sins and have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And while all of that is a gift from God, men and women obtain that gift through the exercise of faith, purely taking God at his word that they are helpless to save themselves. 
And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what we must tell people. We can't afford to appease the Simons of the world by telling them that the gospel works and then let them think that God's word is a tool to help them fulfill their own goals and desires. Does a relationship with Christ provide fulfillment? Absolutely, but not the way that Simon expected. I wonder how thrilled the saints were of the past Men and women who faced jeers and flogging, Hebrews says, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, the world was not worthy of them. Contrary to Simon's hope, we find in Scripture vast evidence that Christianity is often not fulfilling, worldly speaking. Jesus promised his disciples that in this world, you will have what? Trouble. He did not promise fulfillment or even relief in this world, but only in the next he promised joy. Sometimes we get all of that mixed up, don't we? He promised joy. And the goal of a Christian's life is faithfulness and God's glory, not self-fulfillment as the flesh demands. And so I want to challenge you this morning to make sure that as you share the gospel, that you share the whole gospel. Don't shy away from preaching the offensive message of Christ. Acts 8 tells us that Philip spent the afternoon explaining the purpose for Christ from the Old Testament. Well, what does the crucifixion tell us about the sinfulness of man? What is, why was Jesus led as a sheep to the slaughter? Fallen man is in rebellion against God, dead in sin. People need to hear that truth. Don't bend over backwards to be relevant. Don't avoid talking about judgment and hell and wrath, and condemnation, and human helplessness, and our utter dependence upon grace and the righteousness of God. The Simons of the world want a God of power, not a God who dies for them. Let me say that once more. The Simons of the world want a God of power, not a God who dies for them. Partly because of what they think they will get from it, but also partly because what a God of power versus a God who dies for them communicates about their own sin and their own helplessness. And as a result, many of them are still left poisoned by bitterness, still wrapped up in sin, as Peter said. In fact, don't be discouraged that many people who are initially excited to hear the gospel, wasn't that Simon? Reveal that they are the seeds that are sown in the rocky or thorny soil when they, because they don't want to hear about sacrifice and obedience. The encouraging news is that there will be true sheep out there like the Ethiopian eunuch. So friends, Jesus spoke of the kingdom. He spoke of its benefits during his ministry. He also demanded repentance. He demanded obedience. He addressed the rich young ruler, for example, about his God and material wealth. He 
He commented to the woman at the well about her marriage. He warned any who would be his followers that being a disciple required that they count the cost, that it would be a sacrifice, dying to self, devoted obedience, that in comparison to their love for God, that everything else must pale in comparison. He called people to realize that a disciple's life is a narrow, agonizing way of hardship in a way that appears at times as if it demands the impossible. And yes, it does absolutely demand the impossible because God is the one who wants to step in and make the impossible possible. And if we lower that standard, if we lower that message with shallow techniques and candy-coated appeals, I'm afraid that all it often does is add to the horde of goats that will stand before Christ, as Matthew 25 describes, who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we respond? Didn't we, it says in Matthew 25, prophesy in your name? And he responds, depart from me, I never knew you. What a sobering passage. So what have we learned this morning? We must be like Philip. We must be ready to share the gospel and God's providential appointments with all who hear. Simons, Ethiopians, we cannot determine nor shall we try to determine a person's status before offering the gospel. We don't know whether a person is a Simon or whether they are an Ethiopian. Both professed to believe, both were baptized. Second, there are no national boundaries to the gospel. God will gather, as Matthew 24 says, his elect from all the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. There will be Samaritans, Ethiopians, people from every tribe and nation. Third, as we share the gospel, we must shine the light of God's truth, all of it in its sometimes harsh, sometimes unpleasant, definitely offensive nature. And so my question to you is, especially to you young ones, are you prepared to share with people the gospel? Are you prepared to share with them about the nature of sin, the need for Christ, not just the existence and love of Christ? It's all part of the whole message. Could you, like Philip, if God said, go 100 miles away, you're going to meet someone, would you be ready to share the gospel if you heard him quoting Isaiah 53? It should be a goal of ours as people of God to be used like Philip to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And that isn't, friends, you know, that, that comment by Peter, that isn't just to be ready when somebody attacks us as if we need to be ready with our apologetics and our arguments. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us means any moment that God brings you a providential opportunity, you know his word and you are ready to share it with them. We need to remember we are pilgrims and we are here for a purpose. As Paul once said, I am here that I might be a blessing to you. And part of that blessing to others is not just edifying of other believers, but it's also sharing the gospel with the lost. And if that is the reason why God has us here and doesn't take us immediately home, should it not behoove us to carry the burden of knowing his word well? And so my challenge for you is be lovers of the word of God recognize that the remedy for the lost is Jesus. 
Only through the risen Lord of lords and king of kings is there victory over sin and the grave. May we be a people who will boldly reveal that whole truth, the truth of man's condition and problem, and then the proud remedy that we bear, which is the righteousness of our Lord and King, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge in it that it is offensive to our world. We thank you also, Lord, that you've said you will go with us. And as much as we read of, about how difficult and sometimes even agonizing and even impossible living life and faith and obedience to you means and is, Lord, you say that you go with us, you fill us with your spirit, you will bring to mind understanding of your word. You have said to pray for wisdom without doubting, to desire the pureness of your word, and Lord, you will use that to disciple the nations. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us not to get caught up with the desire to make things easy because we are afraid or because we don't think the world will listen or that we hate rejection. But Father, help us to recognize that it is only the truth in its fullness that will save. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.